Hi, my name is Jenny Kwong for Earthlink on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary on Treaty 7 lands and Métis Region 3. Today on the show, I am speaking with Alice Ping Yi Ho, Chinese-Canadian composer based in Toronto. She recorded the Monkey's King Opera with the Canadian Children's Opera Company, which had an official launch on June 5, 2020. The opera is based on the Chinese novel Journey to the West. Along with English, there is also Mandarin and Cantonese in the opera. Here is my conversation with composer Alice Ping Yi Ho. So first of all, introduce yourself and tell me about your background as a musician and composer. Okay. Uh, uh, this is Alice Ping Yi Ho. I'm a Chinese-Canadian composer. And I've been um, uh, educated in the States and uh, at, uh, um, you know, because of the multicultural activities in the city, I'm able to receive many interesting projects in the past. All right. And so how did you become involved with the Monkey's King uh, project? Uh, I know the uh, artistic director, Dean Burry, um, a few years back, I think it's uh, 2016, uh, he actually uh, invited me to write a work to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Canadian uh, Children's Opera Company. Um, and he is very interested um, to mount a project that will educate the, uh, the children in the different especially in the uh, opera world, and, and he also suggests maybe, you know, because um, I have such a rich uh, background, he funds to um, mount a subject that based on a famous Chinese tale. And so we, we choose the Monkey King, which is one of the most, um, uh, or do you say, the Marvel hero in, in the Chinese project. Okay. And so, um, Tell me about um, the artists you worked with on this project. Uh, you worked with uh, Libertist and Marjorie Chan. Correct. Um, so I worked with uh, Marjorie Chan uh, a number of times. Um, we have um, worked together in two operas. This is our second collaboration. And both opera are based on Chinese tales. Um, the, um, Marjorie is a very uh, talented uh, playwright and the artist. She's very experienced. And so um, in this opera, she has written 10 colorful scenes describing the young monkey king, uh, which is only one part of the long epic um, of the journey to the West about his, you know, how he was born. He was nourished by the five elements. And getting into trouble with the Jade Emperor in heaven because he was, uh, you know, breaking about his magic power. But he was enlightened by the Kunyang, which is the uh, who is the goddess of mercy, and then started his journey to the west. All right. And so um, I haven't actually read the novel, but I've seen um, movie and television adaptations. So what is it uh, about? adapting this uh, legend into uh, opera? Yes, um, in a way, um, when I received this assignment to, to write an opera about the Monkey King, I was a bit terrified because this subject, as you described, has been exploited by many uh, you know, me mediums, like the TV movies, and 
But uh, Marjorie and I were very interested to sort of um, um, retell the story in its um, most, um, you know, um, original uh, philosophy, which is about good and evil. And this is quite appropriate um, to educate uh, the young performers uh, in the world about this character of the Monkey King, who was uh, who learned about uh, you know not 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 to be um, how to be brave and how to be humble. And so this is a very appropriate uh, subject, uh, which, which I found to celebrate the uh, anniversary of the Canadian Children's Opera Company for the 50th year. All right. All right. And so tell me about the Canadian Children's Opera Company. Terry Dunn is the music director. Yes. Uh, so um, the Canadian um, uh, Children's Opera, Opera, the Canadian Children's Opera Company uh, one of the rare organizations in the world that is, uh, what I say, is a professional uh, opera company that have uh, about 150 children performers. Uh, they're in full costumes and, you know, they are very well trained and they often um, join in production opera company. Um, so, and um, most of the, the children there, they are, um, you know, I think they uh, a Chinese um, heritage, and most of them are very uh, keen and interested in um, open-minded to explore other cultures. Um, and Terry Deng, and he, she is a very um, capable and, and esteemed conductor. Under her direction, um, we have trained the uh, the children in you know learning a very complex score, and also their uh, Two other languages they have to uh, tackle math songs, and there are also Cantonese dialects in the opera, which is uh, very challenging to you know to, to young performers. So there are music camps and and their coaches and and but the result is quite astonishing, and I'm very proud of the uh, the dedication of everyone involved. Okay. And so tell me about composing for both Western and traditional Chinese instruments. There's the Erwu and the Guzhang. Yes, um, the orchestration or instrumentation of this opera is um, quite unique and quite complex of Chinese instruments. So there's uh, a wide range of Chinese woodwinds, which you know, in, in involve a wide range of Didi, which are the Chinese flutes. And also there's the Wu Si, which is a very folk um, Chinese reed um, chord and have a very low sound. So when the monkey cries, you can, you can hear the, you know, very reedy and, and, and you know. Um, and uh, there's the Gu Zhang, which is a Chinese uh, cedar. Um, and it's one of the oldest instruments. It is um, a very, um, I would say a very feminine uh, instrument, which is quite poetic. Has uh, you know the um, the goddess appear. You hear this beautiful Guzhang um, um, uh, melody, very um, foxy and also very vocal like. And so it is uh, a, a great power to tell the story. When you know when when there's a story, when there's opening on the scene, there's always a beautiful herbal melody. And of course, there's a pipa. And, a Chinese audience may be familiar with the pipa, which is uh, almost like a lute or a guitar, and it's very dramatic. It's a bit 
sometimes I use it for, you know, an agonizing uh, moment when the, unky, when the monkey king is being captured, chased by the soldiers. Also has a beautiful mixture of Western instruments like the harp and um, a string quartet and a instrument which has a number of gongs, Chinese drums, and 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 also the um, uh, a drum set. So it's unique and powerful. Tell me about making the album. Where was it recorded? The uh, album uh, was recorded at the uh, Glenwood Studio in Toronto. Uh, we are very, very uh, fortunate. We have the support of many arts councils uh, for this project. And this is a beautiful venue, one of the best recording studio, uh, I would say, in, in the world. And a great recording engineer, including Doug Doctor, uh, who, you know, uh, helped me. Of course, the, uh, the CD, uh, I have a district uh, distribution label, Center Disc, which is under the umbrella of the Canadian Music Centers. And they have been supporting the uh, commercial release and, and, you know, the distribution. And this is my fifth solo album with Santa Disc. Can you talk about the cast who performed as the Monkey King and Guan Yin, as well as the Jade Emperor? Uh, yeah, they are, um, they are the, uh, the talent, the soloist. Uh, from the uh, Canadian Children's Opera Company. Um, the, uh, the lead role, uh, the monkey is king. Um, I can tell she is Maddie. She just turned 16 two days ago. And uh, the J Emperor is uh, Alastair. And he, I think he may be uh, 15, 16. And, uh, and he, by the time he's, he's sung the role, his, his, his voice is changing. He still retained uh, some of the low and high sound, so the character is quite uh, powerful because he can unique. And Gunyam is Alexar Frankian. She, um, when she performed in the now she's a second year uh, voice student at U University of Toronto. These three um, um, uh, young performers, they have been a software company for a long time. I think some of them started when they were maybe five or six. And all of them so um, in inspired and, and very worked very hard for this complex and creative roles of the Monkey's King. All right. I think uh, that's uh, the end. this is the end of the interview. Can you tell me what you are working on now and what you're looking for uh, for for the future? Uh, right now, I am um, working on another new opera, uh, Chinatown, with City Opera Vancouver, with um, uh, one of the most esteemed writer, uh, Madeline Thien. Um, so I'm very lucky to uh, work with her. She is a librettist, and also uh, another esteemed uh, writer, Paul Yi. He will be the Chinese uh, translator. Um, so the opera will be based on um, three generation. The you know the history of Chinatown in Vancouver. Uh, you know the the early um, 1920s to the uh, 1960s. Um, um, this challenge, uh, in, another challenge for me is uh, I deal with Pashani language in the new work. 
So I'm very um, um, besides that, there are other projects uh, which are chamber work, orchestral work, and, and in, including a potential piano concerto, which keep my life um, colorful under the pandemic. All right. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much. That was my conversation with Chinese-Canadian composer Alice Ping Yi Ho. The Monkey's King CD can be ordered through the Canadian Music Center website at cmccanada.org and can also be downloaded through iTunes. Here is a song from the album, track 7 in the album and scene 6 in the opera called Villagers. Oh, 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 oh,
马骝仔啊，好凄凉啊<笑> ！That song is called Villagers and is from The Monkey's King, which is a Chinese Canadian opera put out through Center Disc and can be. Found on the Canadian Music Center website. In this episode, I spoke with the composer Alice Ping Yiho. She's a Juno-nominated composer. Now here is ArtsLink co-host Nathan Taylor. Hello, this is Nathan Taylor. For July's ArtsLink, I'm going to cover some more free stuff you can get with an internet connection, and they also happen to be my favorite works of film analysis. As a surprise bonus, and building on last month's use of the Internet Archive, what made this segment possible is the section on archive.org called the Wayback Machine, which has been crawling the internet, saving web page content since 2001. The first is about John Carpenter's 1982 film The Thing, and the second is an early version of a book about spaghetti westerns written by the director of Repo Man. When this episode is uploaded to cgsw.com, you'll find links to these great works. All About the Thing by Robert Meekin, published in 2006 on the comprehensive fan site for the Thing, Outpost 31. It begins with an introduction I found welcoming. The author has an uncynical opinion about film and ends by modestly telling us to read it, then forget about it. The author states that he believes the Thing to be instructional in how it goes about telling a story and proceeds to explain the format of his book, which I'll quote part of here. This book takes the point of view of someone watching the movie. For that person, it doesn't matter if something appears in the film by accident or on purpose, if the writer put it there, or if an actor happened to improvise it. All that matters is what we see and how we respond to it. End quote. I've never read such a focused narrative from a film analysis before, and to keep things on a moment-to-moment -moment basis like that really made it an exciting read. The Thing, part of John Carpenter's sort of official Apocalypse trilogy, which includes Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness, is a paranoid, claustrophobic film that, like some of my favorite movies, features a realish sense of logistics and rules in its cinematic universe, which help ground its fantastical properties. If you haven't yet seen it, it's a mostly one-setting film that, in its remote cold, details a series of confrontations between humans and a thing from another world that is able to take over the bodies of other organisms. Very much a whodunit kind of movie, it's based on a book aptly titled "Who Goes There." It contains a couple of famous scenes, at least as shocking as the chestburster scene in Alien, and Rob Botton's practical special effects to this day are both spectacular to watch and jaw-dropping to imagine how they were achieved. What I think makes this step-by-step -step analysis of the thing special is the way the author changed the way I watched the film and enhances the things I already liked about it by pushing the concepts a little further than I had considered on my own thus far. All about the thing shows the events of the film to be just a litany of mistakes, ones made by all involved, not just our ragtag group of humans, but mistakes and calculated risks made by the thing itself. It emphasizes the interesting limitations of the creature or creatures, and reminds us how much time, tissue, effort, and noise it risks with each overt move to assimilate someone. I quite like how the book supposes on the reasoning of the thing as a creature trying to survive, and how one thing sells out another to help draw suspicion away from itself. 
The author also writes about the pleasure of seeing characters on film that actually appear to be thinking about their next move, and I heartily agree. Although what we're watching could be a smart move, or it could be the camera showing us the gears turning, and yet they still make another choice that could end up helping kill the world. Without taking away from the strong work Robert Meekin does by following this moment-by-moment -moment format, there are a couple of random musings he made that I thought were too good to leave without mention. When Kurt Russell gets mad at his computer after losing at chess and poured scotch into it, does the movie end the same way it begins? With a human giving alcohol to an inhuman opponent he has just lost to? Or consider this, what if both characters at the end are things? How would that change the context of their dialogue? Let's have a listen. Well, what do we do? Why don't we just wait here for a little while? See what happens. At some point, this ebook disappeared from Outpost31.com, but I was able to retrieve it using the Internet Archive's Wayback Machine. So look for the link on CGSW when this episode of ArtsLink goes online, or find it yourself by searching Outpost31 from the Wayback Machine. It's a fun thing to use anyway. I do not know when it disappeared from the site, and I tried reaching out to the author for an interview, but was not successful in contacting him. I know the thing itself, the movie, is not for everyone, but I hope this analysis will be an engaging, exciting read for anyone who cares to give it a try. That's All About the Thing by Robert Meekin. And now for a short musical interlude between The Thing and Spaghetti Westerns. And what better connecting thread could there be for a musical interlude than the music of Ennio Morricone, who did The Thing and also most Spaghetti Westerns. Here is his theme to my favorite Spaghetti Western, The Big Gun Down. Ten Thousand Ways to Die by Alex Cox. 
1978 version. My best memory of the old library tower here at the University of Calgary campus was browsing the film section of books and finding, randomly, that the man who had made three of my favorite movies had also written a book about spaghetti westerns. Calling it a director's take on the spaghetti western, and intending it to be his thesis, Alex Cox, director of Repo Man, crafted this as a student in UCLA in the late 1970s and later revised it to be published in 2009. As you may know, spaghetti westerns were the Italian, made-in-Spain films with dubbed audio due to so many languages being spoken on set, and made most famous by the trilogy of Clint Eastwood films featuring the so-called Man With No Name, though Alex Cox points out that he has a name in all three movies. This early version of his book states in its introduction that, It's a young man's book, of interest to young men, maybe, and to young women, if any of you like these things. I don't blame you if you don't, since they are hideously sexist and thick-eared. What follows is an enthusiast's celebration of an unusual genre. Whether the celebrations are justified, whether the Italian Western killed the genre or kept it alive for an extra decade, and what that means, I'll address later in my old man's book. I haven't seen all of his films, but Alex Cox directed at least two quote-unquote westerns, Walker, starring Ed Harris, and Straight to Hell, starring Joe Strummer. He's a born curator, and you can watch the many film introductions he did for Movie Drome on YouTube. He also states in his modern introduction that this version of his book followed the trend of the day, which was to arrange the chapters by theme, covering, for example, death, revenge, sex, madness, and religion, as separate chapters, rather than covering the films chronologically as the book now features. The section that covers good, ugly, and bad, in that order, lies under the heading Antagonists, and so you might find, as I did, that Cox knows these movies well and speaks a language most appropriate when discussing them. Take, for example, his description of a character as Tigrero, specialist in genocide. And in the movie drome introduction to Kiss Me Deadly, where the protagonist is the patriotic sadist private eye, Mike Hammer. The bad news about reading this book is that, as a proper analysis, it is spoilers galore for some obscure movies you might want to actually see. Good news is, if you keep in mind the alternate names these films have, YouTube makes it possible to work the book backwards from the index and watch for free the most interesting titles to skip around in. There is an actual From Simpsons real Troy McClure film you can watch. Hello, I'm Troy McClure. You may remember me from such movies as Today We Kill, Tomorrow We Die. This particular film is more well known as Today It's Me, Tomorrow You, and I agree with the author that it's well worth a watch for the villain, El Fago, played by Tatsuya Nakadai, who was King Lear in Akira Kurosawa's Ran, but is most memorable to me for his role in Kurosawa's Sanjiro and the holy crap moment within. He has such good close-ups of his ever-changing wild man face, and he is most frightening using a kind of square machete slash cleaver in place of a katana blade. It is interesting to see what niggles the author has with certain scenes in more well-known spaghetti westerns, like how Sergio Leone's extended version of The Good, The Bad, The Ugly works to the detriment of the film. I agree. Also how on Leon's masterpiece, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, he rightfully describes uh, Henry Fonda and Charles Bronson having the daftest dialogue in the West. So you found out you're not a businessman after all. Just a man. An ancient race. Interestingly, he takes attack on the logic of flashbacks that I have heard before and applies it to Leone's for a few dollars more. 
To me, it's missing the forest for the trees, but using his logic makes for a film arguably way crazier than is possible. I just don't see it, but read for yourself. If you like spaghetti westerns at all, you really ought to read 10,000 Ways to Die. Having read both versions of the book, I get the impression that the films Mr. Cox spoke the highest of were, uh, for a few dollars more, The Great Silence and Django Kill. Anticipating those who may indeed consider spaghetti westerns to be thick-eared, and that the Clint Eastwood Sergio Leone trilogy isn't for you, I would still suggest the following three titles as just good all-around entertaining movies that happen to be spaghetti westerns. We'll keep Django Kill in that list because it is oh so crazy uh, and very nasty, uh, but we'll add in a couple fun ones. I would uh, absolutely recommend the movies starring Lee Van Cleef, uh, Sabata, and The Big Gun Down. Absolutely. So that's 10,000 Ways to Die by Alex Cox. That's it for Arts Link this month. We'll talk to you folks again in August. Prescott of Mission of Burma, and right now at this moment, you are listening to CJSW 90.9, the University of Calgary.